Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you have a question for this presenter and you're viewing online, please enter it in the Q&A chat and we'll ask at the end of the presentation. And then if you're in the room, we'll ask you to hold and we'll ask those at the end as well. If you're viewing online, your evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen and we'll be handing out your evaluation link um, after today's activity. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker, Dr. Sarita Rao. She is the Director of the Psychiatry Residence Training Program and an Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. She was the Chair and Director of the Behavioral Health Department at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center from 2003 through 2014. She is a psychiatrist specializing in addiction. Her career has focused on patient care, administration, and teaching. She completed medical school in India and did her psychiatry residency and fellowship training at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York and the Department of Psychiatry, Yale University School of Medicine. She has been on the faculty at Yale and Emory Universities and worked with a private practice group in Atlanta. She has done statewide, regional, and national presentations in the field of psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. She has done numerous uh, media appearances in local and national media and her own radio show on Voice America called Mental Health with Dr. Sarita Rao. Join me in welcoming Dr. Rao. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here today. And um, as was mentioned in my introduction, I did live in Atlanta for a few years. I have very happy memories. Um, I met my husband there and I had my son there um, and um, now have been living back in Connecticut for many years. So my top, and I actually will be going back to Atlanta to do a, a presentation at a CDC conference in early June, which I'm looking forward to. So thank you for having me today. And the topic is substance use disorders among functioning adults. It's a very large topic. So we're going to focus a little bit uh, more on opioids since there's a massive opioid epidemic going on in our country for many years, and also on alcohol, which is such a prevalent substance that I think gets a little bit neglected. Um, so I always have too many slides, but I'm not going to use all of them, especially the statistics slides. I'm just going to skim them. And if anybody's interested in them further, you know, I'll direct you to uh, federal government websites, the CDC, SAMHSA, to go down the rabbit hole of statistics if you would like. Sorry, I'm just trying to move my slides forward. Hmm. Okay, so here are our learning objectives. Um, we would, at the end of this presentation, I want people to improve their knowledge base about substance use disorders in adult patients. So like 18 to, I don't know, 75, uh, 80. Um, recognize the appropriateness of when you want to do in-office treatment versus referring the patient out to specialized treatment programs. Of course, if the patient is willing to go. And then um, just to improve knowledge base about medications that are used for opioid use disorders. They're now called MOUD, Medications for Opioid Use Disorders and Alcohol Use Disorders. So we'll do a little bit of neurobiology. For all of us clinicians, it's good to um, learn a little bit of neurobiology or refresh a little bit of neurobiology from time to time. And I think it really helps people to, um, it really helps people to, um, with our own countertransference, when we see patients who can have a challenging clinical presentation in the emergency room or in the office where they clearly need help, but they're, um, just don't seem to be willing to accept that. Um, so addiction, uh, substance use disorders, they are a brain disorder. In many ways, they're more hardwired than schizophrenia, but there's so much social stigma attached to um, having any kind of addictive disease that sometimes 
Um, people forget that families forget it, the patient forgets it. There's a lot of shame and guilt, and sometimes even healthcare professionals who treat them forget it and have a more emotional response. So, the simplest overview, which actually is the most important, is that there's a variety of dopaminergic pathways in our brain, and as many of you know already, the mesolimbic pathway is the reward and reinforcement pathway of the brain. And it mediates drive behaviors, essentially food and sex. So if the animal didn't eat, it would die. And if it didn't mate and have baby animals, then the species would die out. So essentially, it's a very, um, it's a pathway that just mediates these drive behaviors and it exists in animals with much simpler brains. So it's very phylogenetically ancient. As we evolved from simpler animals, this pathway stayed with us. So you could also think of it as the lizard brain. So if you think about a lizard, it's this is not a speciesist remark. Uh, a lizard has a much simpler um, central nervous system than a human being, but it also has this mesolimbic pathway, which helps it to um, you know, stay alive by eating and also, um, you know, meet a girl lizard and, and, and have baby lizards. So um, in the addictive, in any kind of addictive illness, in any kind of substance use disorder, this reward and reinforcement pathway of the brain is essentially hijacked. And the brain is, it, the brain starts to think, the person starts to think, maybe not consciously, but at least unconsciously, that the drugs are more important than survival and survival of the next generation. So for a, for a human being, um, that might mean um, that they are just arriving consistently late to work, they aren't very functional, or they come home and do nothing else except drink. And you know their uh, partner is telling them, I can't go on like this. And it's somehow their brain doesn't give it salience. Another thing to remember, which I also tell patients, so this is a very practical thing to tell patients when they're saying, I'll give up my, you know, Alprazolam, Dr. Rao, but can you find something else that's going to make me, you know, treat my anxiety the way the benzodiazepines do? And I always tell them, I'm sorry, but there's nothing in science or nature that can recreate the effects of addictive substances on the brain. If, if there was something, then they wouldn't be addictive. So any addictive, potentially addictive drug, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, opioids, whatever it might be, it does have a good side for the patient um, and which is why they use it. Now it may not have a good side for everyone, but, um, but eventually it sort of turns on them. It either no longer works or there's so many negative consequences. And that is sort of the hallmark of how do you diagnose somebody with a substance use disorder? Uh, it's used despite consequences. And then the brain does not know the difference between a legal drug, alcohol, nicotine, if you look at process addictions, you know, gambling, illegal drugs, prescribed drug, uh, benzodiazepines, opioids, or a drug bought on the street. And that's also useful to tell patients when they say, you know, I, I'm just using this for, it's prescribed, I've never used a street drug. So this is the American Society of Addiction Medicine's definition of what is addiction. Um, and it's a really good definition that they reworked the definition a few years ago and made it more positive. Um, and basically they're saying that it's a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. So nobody is born programmed to develop a substance use disorder with certainty, but if you have a strong family history, just yesterday in clinic, we saw a, a patient who's in her thirties, she's a nurse, she's a mom. Um, and when I asked her about the family history, you know, her entire family is filled with people who have problems with alcohol and, um, she has, you know, grandfather who was had serious alcoholism. So even though she doesn't drink that much, she already realized it's a problem and you know came into treatment. But you know, we sort of talked to her about the fact that she can never drink safely again. And the genetics, the genetic loading is a big deal. 
But you could have the genetic loading and never develop a substance use disorder if your brain was never exposed to any kind of drugs or alcohol, uh, which is very difficult in our world because in a way our world is kind of washed with potentially addictive substances, legal, illegal, prescribed, not prescribed, it's just everywhere. And then um, people with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences, which is a hallmark of the diagnosis. And there are very good prevention efforts and treatment approaches that are pretty much as successful as those for other chronic diseases. So it's good to think about substance use disorders similar to what you would see for heart disease, um, you know, type two diabetes, bronchial asthma. Um, it's a kind of, some people get better and they never use again for the rest of their lives. Other people are like sober for 25 years, maybe have one relapse, but then there are people who kind of cycle in and out and um, it just varies. So use despite consequences, as I said before. So you have various consequences. It could be social, health, family relationships, career and work responsibilities or legal problems like a DUI. Um, our topic today is substance use disorders among functioning adults. So, you know, I have two half-day addiction psychiatry clinics um, where I see patients with um, my residents and they are usually uh, very functional patients. Many of them have, you know, uh, executive level white collar jobs and nothing bad has ever happened to them at work but their lives are kind of have fallen apart due to their um, substance use and they're, they're sober, stable, they might've completed residential, but they never went to prison or lost their family or any of those things. But if you talk to them, they had consequences, they had serious consequences. And some of them are actually, unfortunately, health consequences, you know, liver damage, depression, um, you know, anxiety, mental, other kinds of mental health problems. And they recognize at that stage that they're still using in spite of all this. So to shift a little bit as part of the neuro, neurobiology, an interesting thing is that all of the uh, addictive drugs that exist in our world, um, when you take opioids, cocaine, alcohol, marijuana, nicotine, everything has an endogenous, uh, it has an endogenous like, um, uh, cousin sort of, you know, so, and so we have receptors for all of these different uh, drugs, which is why we are so susceptible to them. Um, so this is just an overview of the receptor systems, which most of us know um, what they are. But secondarily, each of any drug of abuse secondarily always has a major impact on the mesolimbic pathway. Otherwise we would just complete withdrawal management, which is the new term for detoxification. And then they would be fine, right? They wouldn't need, if it was just withdrawal and tolerance, we would just do the detox and we would be done. So to go into opioids, since we're in the middle of an opioid epidemic, um, you know, the mu opioid receptors are the main opioid receptors that are responsible for the analgesic effects, but also the euphoria and the addictive properties. Um, they're also responsible for tolerance and withdrawal, but then of course, every opioid like um, all the other um, drugs of abuse uh, do have effects on the dopaminergic uh, mesolimbic pathways. A little bit more about the opioid system. It is another system that is underscored by its evolutionary age. So it appeared in essentially modern form in all jawed vertebrates. So we're not even talking mammalian species, we're talking all jawed vertebrates. And they were already established opioid receptors in a common ancestor over 450 million years ago. So this is important for us to remember as physicians and nurse practitioners and nurses or, or any kind of healthcare professional is that when we are writing a prescription for oxycodone or whatever we might be writing a prescription for morphine, and we just think that we that it is safe, that we have some control over it, or you know, we just need to have humility and remember that we're dealing with receptors that were established in a common ancestor 450 million years ago. And so they're not, they're pretty powerful. Um, 
And opioid receptors are also among the most widely expressed receptors in the brain. And they're found in all of these areas that I won't read out, uh, you know, throughout the neocortex, hippocampus, triatum, thalamus, you can see pretty much huge area of the brain and the spinal cord and peripheral neurons. There's a very complex interplay between the opioid system and mood, which actually factors into how we arrived at the current opioid epidemic where chronic pain plays such a major part and prescribed opioids. Um, so the in, endogenous opioid system interfaces with a number of other key neurotransmitter systems. This includes the endocannabinoid system, the serotonergic system, oxytocin, vasopressin, and also the glucocorticoid axis. And so it's a regulator of the emotional circuitry of the brain. As an addiction psychiatrist, I have to confess that even I forget this sometimes when I'm sitting with a patient. So, and it is responsible for the moment to moment fine tuning of affective state, as well as you know, emotional responses to both positive and negative experiences. So it's a very complex thing. It's not like patient, a patient gets a short acting or long acting opioid and they get euphoria or pain relief or they feel attached to it. It's, it's very widespread, the opioid receptors. We're not controlling where those medications and drugs go once they're in their system. And the opioid system is responsible for a lot of things. Um, so in the human clinical population, mood disorders, particularly depression, are often comorbid with opioid use and misuse. And that's a bi-directional relationship with if a patient has an opioid use disorder, opioids are a central nervous system depressant, alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. They do increase the risk of the patient becoming depressed or worsening their pre-existing depression and anxiety. And then the other way around as well, opioids also treat depression really well. And pain is often a mediating factor in this relationship. You can imagine that pain, mood, anxiety, um, opioids, they all kind of like roll together in a way, addiction. Um, and then something to remember, which all of you know already is just a reminder, is that opioids can also trigger opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is a terrible place for the patient to be, and that can precipitate or worsen pre-existing depression. Okay, so now we're going to switch from uh, neuroscience, neurobiology to history. Opioids have a long history. Um, you know, they have been part of the human experience since the Neolithic period, and they predate our modern day civilizations and the cultivation of the opium poppy um, and religious, medicinal and recreational use of the resin of the opium poppy was done by nearly every culture throughout history. I mean, going back to Mesopotamia and the Sumerians were not the first people to discover that this is effective for pain or you creates euphoria. However, many of the root causes of our current opioid crisis are uniquely modern. So um, once the isolation of morphine happened from opium in 1804, um, and there has been a synthesis of thousands of opioid compounds throughout the 20th century, and this has led to a huge field of like drugs with diverse pharmacological characteristics, and we've never gotten away from them. So there have been multiple opioid epidemics over the years in the United States. But the thing to remember is that the current epidemic is almost identical to one that happened at the turn of the century. And at that time, American physicians discovered morphine. Well, they didn't discover it. They got sort of attached to it and also the hypodermic needle. And they were using it to prescribe morphine given with the hypodermic needle for pretty much anything. So if your leg was getting cut off, you were getting morphine. If you had premenstrual cramps, you were getting morphine. And this led to an opioid epidemic, which was almost identical to our current epidemic. And widespread efforts by the federal government back then, including combination of education and regulatory measures for people who are interested, you can look up the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914 by this sort of dual thing, which is again happening now, and they even jailed some physicians back then, they finally ended the epidemic. And whoever was, were the millennial doctors of that time, uh, 
were no longer prescribing morphine and only sort of more outdated physicians were prescribing morphine. Eventually it all ended, but sadly the knowledge was lost with time and history and in history is repeating itself. Sedative hypnotics um, also have a long history and um, you know, there's been self-medication, ceremonial, you know, use of alcohol forever, you know, probably going back to prehistory. Um, and then alcohol, opium, and the two in combination were among the first widely used and frequently misused sedative and anxiolytic drugs. And then bromide salts, peraldehyde, chloral hydrate, they were being used by the end of the 19th century. And then barbiturates were synthesized in 1903 and then chlorodiazepoxide in 1959. So this also has continued. And actually benzodiazepine prescribing, alcohol use has also gone up tremendously in recent years, but people aren't really paying it that much attention um, because the focus has been on opioids. Also in the COVID uh, pandemic, you know, people have been drinking at home and, you know, efforts have all been focused on managing the pandemic. So that's something that hasn't been looked at particularly carefully, um, except that overdoses and, and drug use and alcohol use have increased in the pandemic. So now is the part that I'm totally going to skim over. Please don't mind the skimming. If anyone's more interested, you know, um, you could go into the websites for the CDC and SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, which is the federal government's huge body for um, research and public health for um, substance use disorders and mental health, and, and look at all the statistics. So I, for, for, and maybe there's always, like, there's always like one person in the audience, maybe there's nobody in this audience, but there's always one person who's like, oh, is it really that bad? And so, you know, more than 932,000 people have died since 1999 from a drug overdose. And the age adjusted rate of overdose deaths increased by 31% from 2019 to 2020. So the federal government collects a huge amount of data. It takes them time to collate it. Um, everything I'm sharing, uh, except for one slide, it's all updated up to January. I mean, the most recent release by the federal government was January, 2023, roughly. So, but it's always like a year or two behind because um, they have to collate the data. They have to, you know, vet it, make sure it's okay. So most of these deaths, what are the substances involved? Opioids, mainly synthetic opioids, other than methadone, so fentanyl is a big one, are currently the main driver of drug overdose deaths. But if I look at the data just in my own state in Connecticut or around the country, it's a mix of different things. So, but 82.3% of opioid involved overdose deaths involved synthetic opioids. A huge amount of that is fentanyl, um, most of which is imported into the country from other places. And um, drug overdose deaths involving psychostimulants such as methamphetamine are also increasing with and without synthetic opioid involvement. So this is a map. Um, this is the most recent data. As you could see, the dark green states are, are the dark green states have the um, highest rates of um, overdose deaths. Um, Georgia is a sort of cerulean blue, which is uh, worse than some of the paler blues, but uh, better than the darkest colors. And as you can see in New England, we have always fallen firmly into these dark green categories because we're on the trade routes. And so whenever you're on the trade routes for all of these drugs, they are going to drop there along the way. Um, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health is something that the um, uh, federal government does, and it covers the civilian non-institutionalized population age 12 and older. Typically, it's collected face-to-face, -face, which has changed in the pandemic. And approximately 67,500 people are interviewed annually. And it's been conducted since uh, 1971. They don't just look at like are people, have people developed a substance use disorder, they also just look at use and misuse. And they also look at um, mental health, like major depressive disorders, and they look at perceived recovery. So this is a very busy slide, I apologize for the busyness, but the main thing to remember is um, 
people age 12 or older in 2021, 21.9% of the population, 61.2 million people used some kind of illicit drug in the past year, most commonly marijuana. It, since it's federal government data, you know, still illegal from a federal government perspective. And then 46.3 million people age 12 or older, so 16.5% of the population, this includes adolescent, met the applicable DSM-5 criteria for having a substance use disorder in the past year, out of which 29.5 million people, alcohol use disorder, and 24 million people classified as having a drug use disorder. And it was highest among young adults aged 18 to 25, which is a bit of a shift because it used to be more older people. But 94% of them didn't get any treatment. And out of that 94%, nearly all the people didn't think they needed treatment. So motivation is a huge factor. So now I'm going to skim over the rest of the slides a little bit because I'm seeing that it's 1226 and we want to go on to treatment. So um, we're going to skim over the slide. So basically, SAMHSA is saying that just use caution when comparing estimates from 2020 and 2021 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The data was you know, collected differently and there was a delay and it was web-based data collection. So very limited in-person contact. So can't be exactly compared. This is an old slide, but I always use it. Uh, you know, when you look at people who are addicted to heroin or let's say fentanyl for this slide purposes, it's heroin. They don't, it's very rare for them to suddenly start using opioids one day and become, you know, develop a massive problem with it. It can happen, but usually people who are, you know, already have an alcohol use disorder, they're two times as likely to get addicted to heroin. Now heroin even has become kind of uh, outdated and it's more fentanyl. Marijuana, if they're already addicted to marijuana, three times as likely. Cocaine, 15 times as likely. And if they're on opioid painkillers, they're 40 times as likely because by this time they've already developed an, uh, a, a, a substance use disorder, an opioid use disorder. Um, and, um, okay, a little bit about alcohol. We will skim over these slides for the purposes of time, but you know, again, this is also the um, data from the NSDUH and it's just differently put than the previous data, but Bottom line is there's a ton of people that have alcohol use disorder. It's the other uh, constant epidemic. It's more sort of under the radar. And then there are people who have alcohol related medical problems and they may not meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder, but they have kind of high risk drinking, problem drinking, medical issues. And this is the, it's a provisional data. So, this is based on data uh, available for analysis at the um, SAMHSA and CDC April 2nd, 2023. So that's why they're calling it provisional because it hasn't been finalized yet. But you could see that um, the drug overdose deaths are climbing. So the little circles are the predicted value and the solid black line is the reported value. So in spite of massive efforts by the federal and state governments, overdose deaths continue. This is deaths by gender. Um, again, you know, both genders are going up. Um, this is stimulants, cocaine and psychostimulants also going up. And this is, um, overdose deaths involving cocaine with opioids, um, and it's also going up. Sorry, it's not moving forward. And this is the involvement of benzodiazepines, um, you know, um, overdose deaths involving benzodiazepines with, um, with cocaine. So, all right, so now we have to get out of these statistics slides. And then the, um, so the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration does a huge amount of efforts in the primary prevention space, you know, uh, educating the public, uh, including dangers of sharing medications, raising awareness among pharmaceutical and medical communities about the risks of overprescribing, 
naloxone distribution, uh, you know, it's become over the counter now in Connecticut um, and just massive efforts, billions of dollars, but as you can see, it's not really having the effect that um, was hoped to be. So now we're gonna switch into one or two cases. You don't have the cases, the slides are kind of busy, but I just wanted to give you an idea of a patient or two. These are based on real patients that changed one or two things so that they're not easily identified and for HIPAA that they're not identified. So we'll just call this person Sam. He's executive level, white collar job, makes very good money. I wouldn't say that he's middle class, he's upper middle class. He is in his 50s. Um, he's a very devoted dad and husband. His wife is very supportive. Um, and he was very active and athletic in his younger years. Um, he's had severe chronic pain due to various medical conditions for many years. Um, and he is one of the, he's sort of a poster child for the current opioid epidemic. He was prescribed high dose opioids by his primary care doctor for many years. And he didn't doctor shop, he didn't have multiple pharmacies. Finally, his PCP retired and a new nurse practitioner took over and a new medical director took over. And they were horrified at the um, level of opioids he was getting. So they started a taper, um, but the taper didn't go well at all. And the medical director um, told his nurse practitioner, this taper has to be speeded up because a lot of the research shows that you're more successful at tapering somebody off opioids if you do it faster rather than slower, unlike benzos, which we usually taper slower. Anyway, along the way, they diagnosed him with opioid use disorder, and um, they said that, you know, they recommended he go on buprenorphine, but he had a really tough time finding a doctor in Connecticut, even though he had really good insurance, uh, the best insurance you could have, really, um, because he also was on a prescribed benzodiazepine. So finally, his... Um, family found me uh, and, and then, um, you know, we met with him and said that um, we'd be fine to take him on and that we're gonna stabilize him and um, we're gonna stabilize him and then taper off the benzodiazepines. So we started him on buprenorphine after he was stabilized for a few months, then we tapered off the benzodiazepines slowly, like, you know, he wasn't on a very high dose. Uh, it took maybe two or three months. We started on a parallel process right away, an SSRI for his severe panic disorder and anxiety. Initially, he would take a family member's benzodiazepine sometimes if he was like in a panic attack. And we kind of were very gentle in our style, but we sort of communicated that this might endanger his buprenorphine prescription. Um, but, um, and we did a lot of, you know, motivational enhancement therapy. And basically, he's stopped using any benzodiazepines. I don't think he's used any benzos except for uh, when he gets an MRI, we, we give him something for his claustrophobia that one time, you know, and that's been, I would say two years and he goes to weekly or biweekly therapy and he's been extremely stable for over four years. His urine toxicology has been pretty much negative except in the early years, he occasionally used benzos. He decided to try medical marijuana for a few months, which we were very much against, but we're like, look, you know, we can't get in your way. We're not going to taper you off buprenorphine because you're using medical marijuana. But he stopped and he no longer uses it. His drug screen's negative for it for at least eight months. The second patient, I will call her Consuela. She's, uh, again, wife, mom of two young children in her 30s, busy job and family life, very supportive husband, although we've never met him, which is kind of unusual. And uh, she basically had what would be considered functional alcoholism, although I don't know how functional it is. And she was clinically depressed and anxious. She struggled for quite a while to get sober in spite of the best efforts of the treatment team. She did her intensive outpatient program, stayed sober for a while, relapsed. She has no denial that she suffers from alcohol use disorder. Um, she takes an antidepressant and buspirone. Um, but in the pandemic, she had a lot of downtime. Uh, she worked from home. I, don't, I wouldn't call it downtime, just time without social activities. And this calmed her brain down. She mostly just took care of her family and worked full time from home. And she actually found her own resources and became sober. She read this book called The Naked Mind, which now I recommend to many of my patients. And she attends these self-help groups called Women for Sobriety. 
and she has not had any relapses and she's managing a busy job, family, children, and her depressions and remission. The reason I give her as an example is that it was sort of, she did get treatment from the Yukon health system, but essentially she got sober, you know, through her own motivation and her own search for resources. So I won't go over this next uh, young man, except to say that he's, we started seeing him when he was an undergrad. He's now in graduate school. His only drug is really marijuana. Um, alcohol was never a problem, although he recently uh, relapsed into alcohol, uh, but he's again stabilized. So just to show that a very young person in college can still get sober and stay sober with some maybe backtracking once in a while. So a quick thing that they're now, the overdose deaths are shifting and there's racial disparities coming up. And there's an increasing number of overdose deaths in African-American communities, which at the beginning of the pandemic, at the beginning of the opioid epidemic a few years ago, it was predominantly white middle-class um, people who were suffering from the um, opioid use disorder and also from the overdose deaths and also predominantly um, white middle-aged like women in rural areas in America but now the opioid epidemic has really started to shift in a big way to African-American communities in cities and um, a lot of issues about the racial disparities are, are coming up and you know we can we won't linger over them because it's just more to know. So this is a study I'm not going to share every slide because then we won't have time, but um, this is a study that was done a few years ago by uh, researchers in uh, Boston Medical Center, Boston University School of Medicine, and they looked at uh, racial disparities in recent opioid overdose deaths, focusing on four states, Kentucky, Massachusetts, New York, and Ohio. And um, in the references, you have the, um, the actual research and you can sort of read it in your own time. Um, also just remember pregnant mothers, this is old data, but you know, if you're looking at young people getting addicted to opioids or alcohol or, you know, marijuana or anything, then a lot of them will become pregnant either in a planned or unplanned manner. And now you have this huge issue of antenatal, uh, drug use and babies being born, you know, physically dependent on various things. Um, the diagnosis of opioid use disorder among patients with chronic pain, which is increasingly a, a patient population that we see, is very complex because they don't really neatly fit into a DSM-5 or ICD-10 criteria. There is also this gray zone between the use of opioids to treat pain where they've become very psychologically dependent, but they're not quite, they don't quite have an opioid use disorder and then the opioid use disorder. And pain is subjective and can't be measured objectively and is intertwined in the brain and body with like mood, anxiety, other factors, as we discussed in a previous slide. Um, so we've talked about some of this already. So I won't go back over it. Um, again, as I said, huge gray zone. And, but some of the patients are overusing prescribed opioids, running out early, that is often, not necessarily fully called, doesn't fully meet the criteria for opioid use disorder, but there's also this in-between thing called opioid misuse, where they combine them with other medications that are central nervous system depressants or illegal drugs. And, and then, you know, moving on to opioid use disorder, sometimes they're just crushing and snorting them. That's much more, you know, clear in terms of like, are they, you know, develop, have they developed an opioid use disorder? Um, I won't go over the underage drinking just because of time, but if you think about the pregnancy slides, you could see underage drinking, there's a decline, but it still exists, right? So, and it's a huge problem for the brain. I'm just gonna jump forward into the uh, pharmacotherapy slides. So when you think of pharmacotherapy, you, you think about withdrawal management, which is the new term for detoxification. And then you think of maintenance medications. So opioid withdrawal is terrible, but most people will not die from it unless you're 
already very debilitated or very old, but it's like having stomach the stomach flu and the upper respiratory flu combined together along with severe cravings, intense anxiety, and insomnia. So you have chills, runny nose, uh, tearing, lacrimation, abdominal cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, muscle aches and pains. You basically feel like you're dying, but you're not dying. So the reason to do a detoxification or withdrawal management is to just safely sterilize the patients so that they can engage in some treatment. And there's also this thing called protracted or post-acute withdrawal that's seen in alcohol, opioids, any kind of sedative hypnotics, where after the in immediate detoxification period is over, it lasts one to six months, and uh, it's a frequent trigger for relapse. And the symptoms consist of some mix of insomnia, anxiety, mood shifts, irritability, intense cravings, and for opioids, some nausea and diarrhea might be present for a few weeks when coming off the opioids. So remember, just to go back to the withdrawal, I did not cover alcohol withdrawal, but alcohol withdrawal is life-threatening. And so it can cause seizures and as is barbiturates, benzodiazepines. So when in doubt, always admit um, and do an inpatient detoxification. Um, and so for protracted withdrawal, which lasts one to six months, you know, psychosocial interventions are very helpful. And then non-addictive medications, I mean, gabapentin has some addictive potential, but you could use it, um, trazodone, doxepin to help the person sleep. Um, um, sometimes I'll use a clonidine patch for a week or two in the initial part of the uh, uh, protracted withdrawal from opioids, guanfacine, and in rare cases, you can use um, low-dose atypical antipsychotics temporarily for maybe a month or two or three months for severe mood swings, anxiety, irritability, that sort of thing. But really heavily encourage the patient to do psychotherapy, relapse prevention therapy, you know, AA or NA, or if they don't like that, some of these other groups like refuge recovery, Dharma recovery, um, and then non-pharmacological relaxation techniques and you know, use motivational enhancement therapy. Long-term medications for opioids fall into two categories, agonists, antagonist. Antagonist is naltrexone. You can think of it as a long-acting naloxone in a way. Basically, it binds very, very tightly at the mu opioid receptors and turns it off completely. There's no way to override the block. You would stop breathing and die before you overrode the block. So it's important to educate patients about that. I always do liver function tests and I'm a pretty conservative doctor. So I will not start naltrexone for opioids or alcohol. Um, if, unless the liver function tests are within three times normal. Some addiction specialists do it for five times normal, but I've never done it. And then I'll just follow it to see if they're getting better. Um, for alcohol, naltrexone is used 50 milligrams a day. For opioids, it's typically given 100, 100 Monday, Wednesday, and 150 on Friday. Now, agonist maintenance medications, methadone, buprenorphine. Methadone is a full agonist. It's only prescribed in methadone maintenance treatment programs, which, is, which has very, very structured treatment uh, wrapped around the pharmacological treatment. And then buprenorphine, partial agonist, you know, prescribed in doctor's offices. Now the requirement for the X waiver has also been lifted. So anybody can prescribe buprenorphine. And in the United States, uh, I'm sorry, it says suboxone. I should have changed that. The buprenorphine is mixed with naloxone so that if the patient takes it, instead of taking it sublingually, if they, you know, dissolve it in some liquid and try to inject it, it will induce withdrawal. Remember, if you have a pregnant, if you have a pregnant patient, you do not want to give them the buprenorphine naloxone um, formulation. You want to give them pure buprenorphine because it can result in a miscarriage if they go into opiate withdrawal. So the gold standard treatment for a pregnant patient is always agonist maintenance therapy, methadone or buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. It stabilizes the mom. It, it, it helps the baby to not have like these ups and downs of like withdrawal high, and it helps the mother to get nutrition, uh, OB, you know, care, all of that other stuff. And um, yes, the babies have withdrawal, but that can be managed in the hospital. 
Uh, and the other big risk of doing a detoxification from opioids for uh, pregnant patients is miscarriage. So I would say with fair amount of certainty that I think in most of Connecticut, you will not find a doctor that's will, willing to detoxify a pregnant patient, no matter how much they ask. So, but it might be different in some other states. Um, methadone and buprenorphine completely occupy the receptors and they um, act almost as a blocker, although they're not a blocker, now is a blocker at the higher dosages because shorter acting opioids like heroin or fentanyl can't get in. For alcohol, you have multiple medications you can try. There's acamprosate, which helps to uh, reset the GABA glutamate imbalance that occurs once patients stop drinking. It's, it was used in Europe for like 13, 14 years before it came to the US and it's highly successful there. Um, part of the reason is that it's, it's, it's meant for maintenance of sobriety. So it's not useful for people who are actively drinking and you want them to try and stop. It's useful for patients who are motivated, stop drinking, and are engaging in some kind of treatment. And the dosage is usually 333 milligrams, two tablets, three times a day. Usually freaks patients out because they do the math and they're going 666. They're like, why is it formulated like this? And you just have to kind of calm them down about it. Um, and then naltrexone, as I mentioned, 50 milligrams daily. Topiramate is also a good um, um, you know, um, anti-craving medication for alcohol, as is gabapentin. Some of these are off-label. Um, and then naltrexone is useful for people who might still be drinking, but but you're trying to get them to drink less and, and reduce the risks. And then the other thing, so while they're waiting to get sober, you know, that's a good intervention. And also um, for people who are sober, it helps to take a slip, which might be just one or two drinks and prevent them from going down that rabbit hole of the full relapse. So should you treat in the office or should you uh, refer out? Sometimes let's be honest, the patient's not willing to go anywhere, right? As we discovered in the statistics slides, but always make a referral to a therapist or a counselor specializing in substance use disorders and dual diagnosis. This way the patient is at least getting some psychosocial treatment. And then if you feel like they really need the structure of a residential treatment program or a partial hospital day program or an intensive outpatient, which is usually three hours, three days a week, just for the structure in order to get them to get that initial sobriety and jumpstart, certainly refer them. Very important, particularly for alcohol sedative hypnotics. Do they need a medically supervised you know, withdrawal management and detoxification? and then just work with the patient to have the releases of information so that you can communicate with the other members of the treatment team. Um, need for inpatient detoxification. Um, you might need to just detoxify somebody from alcohol while they're on prescribed opioids. My advice would be to always hospitalize them. It's so complicated. Um, outpatient detox would require a really reliable family member that would manage like the medications and, um, and, and take the person to the emergency room if they start to have a seizure or something. And then it's nice for the patient to stay in a structured program, whether they're going through withdrawal management or even later residential, just to get away from the external triggers. They can still walk out and leave treatment, but at least this way they have to think about it. Um, and then when they step down from that, it's, and some people directly go into an intensive outpatient program, which is usually three times a week, um, three hours, individual therapy, family therapy, group therapy, they'll send them to self-help. This is for people who need more than the once or twice a week outpatient therapy. Then you have methadone maintenance programs and then buprenorphine maintenance, which now can be done in any office, including the primary care doctor. Remember, they all require some level of motivation, right? So these are the different levels. You also have structured sober homes where people go and live for six months, one year, two years. They don't, the people go to work from there. They attend some meetings. Maybe there's one AA meeting in the, in the group home and at sober home, I mean, and then, you know, they're mostly on their own, there might be some drug screening. There's some long-term residential programs that are three months to two years. Patients need to be motivated to go to those programs because they have a lot of strict rules. You know, they often require 12-step involvement, jobs, um, clean drug screens. 
So this is just a, um, we don't have a whole lot of time. I want to leave time for questions. So I'm just gonna quickly go over the psychosocial interventions. These are some of the main therapies that are used in treatment of patients with uh, substance use disorders. So relapse prevention therapy is the biggest one. It's cognitive behavioral therapy for people with substance use disorders. So it basically helps the patient identify triggers that lead to cravings and lead, might lead to a relapse and find other ways to mitigate them. Then you have 12-step facilitation. Family therapy is always important. Motivational enhancement therapy, we use it even for people who are sober, just to kind of help them keep up that uh, thing. And the most effective treatment for drug use disorders, not alcohol, drug use disorders, it's contingency contracting, where patients exchange uh, clean urine screens. We actually are not supposed to use the words clean and dirty anymore because they are pejorative, negative urine drug screens for vouchers that they can exchange for goods and services. So it kind of teaches their mesolimic pathway to enjoy slower rewards. And this has been researched extensively, including at, in Vermont, uh, University of Vermont from the 1990s and has been shown to be the most effective treatment for you know, any kind of drug use disorder, not alcohol. And it is still only used in some VAs because just think about it socially, like I could just see it splashed across the newspaper, you know, some terrible headline and addicts paid to stay sober. And so a lot of it is just social bias. So this is just a little bit about relapse prevention. It's CBT for people with substance use disorders. It's very here and now. It doesn't ask about what happened in your childhood. Uh, I mean, it does, but the, the focus is on, on the here and now. They have buzzwords like halt, which is very applicable to physicians and nurses, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So a lot of times people with substance use disorders, whenever they feel any of these things, they just use something. So instead they're taught to identify the, what they're suffering from, you know, address it. Sometimes they can't address it if they're lonely and there's no, no one in their life. They have to kind of sit with the feeling and then learning techniques to help uh, cope with cravings and triggers. So it's the most widely used, you know, uh, therapy. Um, so I'm going to stop here. I won't go into the spiral model of change. And um, I'm just going to stop here. And we don't really have time to do SBIRT, but I'll say that, which is screening, brief intervention and treatment. But this is a lot of the uh, self-help groups that are available. So there's Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, it is still incredibly um, good for patients, but some people will say, oh, it's too religious or, you know, um, <clears throat> it's too culty or whatever. But then there's Women for Sobriety. I don't know if that exists in Georgia, but there's also Refuge Recovery, Dharma Recovery, you know, Al-Anon is for families and loved ones. I don't really have any patients that go to smart recovery and rational recovery. I just know they exist, but I don't have any patients that go to them. So I'm gonna stop here and just ask about questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Rao. Um, we, if you're viewing online and you have a question, please enter it in the Q&A chat and we'll uh, make sure to get that asked. Do we have any questions or comments in the room? I got a question. Okay. Have you ever heard of ibogaine? Have you ever heard of ibogaine? I-B-O-Gain-G-A-I? Yes. yes, I have heard of it. Uh, ibogaine, uh, I read about it like, uh, you know, a year or two ago. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it, to be honest. I would have to almost look it up to answer your question. Have you seen a patient with it? Is that why you're asking? Uh, no, I just learned about it this week and I'm, I'm going to research it more. And I thought you knew a little bit more. By the way, just a suggestion, things that also does help in the treatment. Again, in my patients that I've seen over 28, 30 years of practice, more or less, is uh, supplementation, uh, get at the problems of the liver with like special vitamins like milk thistle and cytocholine also helps, 500 milligrams. And again, milk thistle, 500 to 1,000 milligrams, you can give them. And it believe it or not, I thought it was crazy stuff, but it, it regenerates the liver. Incredible. Because the liver does have the power to regenerate itself. And the other one, at the level of the brain, mesencephalic, 
is astrocytic ones and type two cells also along with neurons do get damaged. So I was thinking of folic acid, taurine, and all the other vitamin B complexes. Do they help? Yes, they're a very key part of alcohol withdrawal, the vitamin B complex and folic acid, yes, to prevent uh, Wernicke's Corsakoff's. And a lot of internists also give magnesium during withdrawal management. They all give magnesium internists. For some reason, addiction psychiatrists don't, but we should. Every addiction medicine doctor I've met gives magnesium to prevent seizures. Does, and of ketogenic, does ketogenic diet plays a part in this thing? Because it's been shown in Alzheimer's to reverse Alzheimer's at the beginning and midway more or less. Does it help with alcoholics having the brain work more on ketones than sugars? Thank you for that. So I think ketogenic diets are so tough for people to follow, right? Um, and I, I, I don't know that much about it, except um, that I would say that for anything, weight loss, uh, alcohol, it's very individualized that I think the diet things, what works for one person versus another. I see a question in the chat that says, any suggestions on treatment of Kratom? I have no suggestions for the treatment of Kratom, except to say that we can sort of treat it like, you know, there are many uh, substances of abuse or, or, or substances that people can get addicted to that there's no like physical withdrawal that can be treated. You know, there is a physical withdrawal, but it can't be treated. So I would say psychosocial treatments for all of these things, you know, whether it's Kratom or Ibogaine, like psychosocial treatments are still the mainstay of treatment for substance use disorders. Once the withdrawal management uh, detoxification is over, medications are really only 10 to 25% of a person getting better. Dr. Raut, um, one question from my end. I was wondering if you could comment on the itrogenic dependence of stimulants, which I'm seeing in a lot of functional people, especially in the outpatient practice in a well-to-do area. A lot of, I like you've talked about executives, I'll just talked about, you know, very good family housewives. Um, taking stimulants in the morning and alcohol or some kind of a benzo in the evening. I am, my clinic is flooded with such people. What words of uh, wisdom for treatment of those people would you say? I would say that that's a really challenging patient population, right? So you have these middle to upper middle class wives and mothers who are sort of on the surface functioning perfectly. They're like, go, go, go all day. They, they, their houses are immaculate. They're taking their children to the school drop-offs and everything else. And um, they really don't interact with a, a lot of people outside of the house, except on their own terms. Like, if, you know, if they don't want to jump off at school, drop off and chat with the other moms, they can just say they're busy and drive off. You know, their husbands often have very busy jobs and are not around much uh, and, and kind of turn a blind eye a little bit because their world will come crashing down if they have to send off their wife to residential treatment. Um, and I think, and they often are, they often run these perfect homes and they're really good wives and mothers and they, and they but every night they like drink a lot of wine after dinner's completed and everyone's children have gone to bed, you know? And uh, they are on prescribed stimulants for, um, you know, a diagnosis of ADHD, um, which is often self-report, right? It's not, everyone doesn't get psychologically tested. And then some of them also dip into their um, children's ADHD medications. They, they tell the pediatrician or the child psychiatrist, you know, we would like to give them a a drug holiday sometimes on the weekend or summers or something. And, you know, or they just give their child a drug holiday and they even rationalize it to themselves. Like, oh, it's not good for the kid to have amphetamines night and day. And they'll, they'll, they'll use it to function better. So I don't know, that's, that's the level of denial for somebody like that. It would be so high that it would be tough, but, um, you can decide as a physician, if you inherit them, whether you're going to continue the stimulants and amphetamines or not, you know, that that's a challenge too. But yes, you do see them everywhere in the country and they are not 
from socioeconomically depressed groups. And so they often don't meet the, when they go to a psychiatrist's office, they don't meet the sort of visual of what the psychiatrist might think of as a patient who might be abusing their prescribed drugs, you know. Interesting. Any other questions or comments in the room? No? All right. Thank you, Dr. Rao. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Bye.